Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of Book 5, Chapter 10. What do you think has happened to Pierre's missing money? As a side note, does anyone here have any idea how much money that is roughly in today's money? Pierre has good intentions in the changes he made, but the changes are not having the results he intended. Do you think Pierre is to blame for this? Do you think he has been remiss in his actions? Blame? I mean, yes, he's to blame, but he did have good intentions. I love how he walked away saying, it was so easy to make such a big positive impact. I can't believe more people don't do such a simple thing to make so much positive influence in the world. And meanwhile, like everyone's running and screaming behind him about all the terrible changes he's just made. That's pretty funny. Uh, Jen0889 says, Oh, poor stupid Pierre. I felt sorry for him when he was younger and slightly wild. When his wife admitted to essentially despising him after the duel, I still felt for him. Thinking that moment and his welcome to the Masons as a catalyst for change now, I'm just annoyed with him. He seems to dislike anything hard or difficult. It is cause for confusion. He just lets others handle the problems, just like he did when he was younger. I suspect that the outstanding 100,000 rubles are just being spent by Pierre under his belief of kindness. He definitely doesn't see that he's being taken advantage of. In regards to Chief Stewart, I believe he's embezzling money from Pierre, and given what we see of Pierre's financial management, he might not notice until it's too late. Ripster66 says that missing money could be anywhere. There are so many people wanting to take advantage of Pierre's naivety and general good nature. He's not exactly monitoring his money very closely, and so he's probably hemorrhaging cash all over the place. I think that's probably it, right? It's just, it's not going to a specific place. I think that's just the money he's bleeding here and there. Twisted Every Way says Pierre is not a manager and does not have a head for business. Although embezzlement is a good guess, I suspect Pierre is spending some of his money himself. He was quite generous with the Masons, and Helena took some money, I assume. I think that was part of the rest of the money Helena's take. It was said it was like, um, referred to as like something, not, um, uh, not alimony, something like that though. Um, he's probably doling out the rubles like candy to be generous. Yeah, you're probably right, twisted every way. Warren Kovacki says, reading this chapter, I'm starting to wonder if the late Count Bezikov knew that Pierre would likely destroy his immense fortune should he inherit it. If that's the case, Pierre seems to be off to a fantastic start. It'd be, half a, it'd be a hard job um, to just protect a vast empire like that. You know, Pierre's actually... Well, it's a difficult position to be in. Not that, you know, it's it's going to take a lot of effort for him to lose all of that wealth. I just don't even think it's possible, you know. He'd have to be uh, stupid because it's coming in as fast as he can spend it. Those estates would be worth, you know, generational wealth. Every one of those estates, um, if you were to sell them. But even without selling them, they're earning him 500000 per year rubles 500,000 in that day's money would be you know tens of millions a year I think in our money so um, even without selling anything just living off the wealth that is generated from his holdings he's making more money than he could spend although according to that chapter he wasn't making more than he could spend it was somehow disappearing um, 
Alisani says, I feel bad for Pierre. Everyone is just taking advantage of him wherever they can, and he doesn't even know any better. I hope someone kind of shakes him to wake up and more observant about his money, because soon it'll all be gone. Uh, by the way, I think... Um, Oh, that, that guess that I said of tens of millions, I don't actually know, that was a complete guess, but I think it would be something like that, right? Like half a million in that money would be times by 20, 30, how many? I don't know, what, what's the multiplication there? Ryan Bread Egg, oh sorry, Rye Bread Egg says, Am I the only one that's starting to view Pierre as a villain? He has anger problems, insecurities, can't think critically, and essentially gives up when things are hard. The adorable idiot factor is rubbing off, and now I just see an idiot. That's a pretty good point. You know, I don't think he gave up here when things got hard. I think he just genuinely thought he, you know, the the job was done. I feel like he th- he felt like he got in and made a good impact and and got out, and it was that easy. He didn't realize that you know the changes he had made to his serfdom uh, actually didn't make their lives any better. Anyway, let's keep uh, reading chapter what are we reading 11 it's a bit of a no wait yes yeah chapter 11 a little bit of a longy longy so let's crack on shall we returning from his journey through south russia in the happiest state of mind pierre carried out an intention he had long had of visiting his friend bolkonsky ah awesome awesome i'm not even upset that this is a long chapter anymore because we're gonna see some pierre and Bolkonsky action. Um, visiting his old friend, P- Bolkonsky, who, whom he had not seen for two years. Bogachurovo lay in a flat, uninteresting part of the country among fields and forests of fir and birch, which were partly cut down. The house lay between a newly dug pond filled with water to the brink and with banks still bare of grass. It was at the end of a village that stretched along the high road in the midst of a young copse in which were a few fir trees. The homestead consisted of a threshing floor, outhouses, stables, a bathhouse, a lodge, and a large brick house with a semicircular facade still in course of construction. Round the house was a garden newly laid out. The fences and gates were new and solid. Two fire pumps and a water cart painted green stood in a shed. The paths were straight, the bridges were strong, and had had handrails. Everything bore an impress of tidiness and good management. Some domestic serfs Pierre met in reply to inquiries as to where the prince lived, pointed out a small, newly built lodge close to the pond. Anton, a man who had looked after Prince André in his boyhood, helped Pierre out of his carriage, said that the prince was at home, and showed him into a clean little anteroom. Pierre was struck by the modesty of the small, though clean house after the brilliant surroundings in which he had last met his friend in Petersburg. He quickly entered the small reception room with its still unplastered wooden walls redolent of pine and would have gone farther, but Anton ran ahead on tiptoe and knocked at a door. Well, what is it? came a sharp, unpleasant voice. A visitor, answered Anton. Ask him to wait. And the sound was heard of a chair being pushed back. Pierre went with rapid steps to the door and suddenly came face to face with Prince André, who came out frowning and looking old. Pierre embraced him and, lifting his spectacles, kissed his friend on the cheek and looked at him closely. Well, I did not expect you. I'm very glad, said Prince André. 
Pierre said nothing. He looked fixedly at his friend with surprise. He was struck by the change in him. His words were kindly, and there was a smile on his, his lips and face, but his eyes were dull and lifeless, and in spite of his evident wish to do so, he could not give them a joyous and glad sparkle. Prince Andre had grown thinner, paler, and more manly-looking. But what amazed and estranged Pierre, till he got used to it, were his inertia and a wrinkle on his brow, indicating prolonged concentration on someone some one thought. As is usually the case with people meeting after a prolonged separation, it was long before their conversation could settle on anything. They put questions and gave brief replies about things they knew ought to be talked over at length. At last, the conversation gradually settled on some of the topics at first lightly touched on. Their past life, plans for the future, Pierre's journeys and occupations, the war, and so on. The preoccupation and despondency which Pierre had noticed in his friend's look was now still more clearly expressed in the smile with which he listened to Pierre. Especially when he spoke with joyful animation of the past or the future, it was as if Prince André would have liked to sympathise with what Pierre was saying, but could not. The latter began to feel that it was in bad taste to speak with his enthusiasms, dreams and hopes of happiness or goodness in Prince André's presence. He was ashamed to express his new Masonic views, which had been particularly revived and strengthened by his late tour. He checked himself, fearing to seem naive, yet he felt an irresistible desire to show his friend as soon as possible that he was now a quite different and better Pierre than he had been in Petersburg. I can't tell you how much I have lived through since then. I hardly know myself again. Yes, we have altered much, very much since then, said Prince André. Well, and you? What are your plans? Plans, repeated Prince André, ironically. My plans, he said, as if astonished at the word. Well, you see, I'm building. I mean to settle here altogether next year. Pierre looked silently and searchingly into Prince André's face, which had grown much older. No, I meant to ask, Pierre began, but Prince André interrupted him. But why talk of me? Talk to me, yes, tell me about your travels and all you have been doing on your estates. Pierre began describing what he had done on his estates, trying as far as possible to conceal his own part in the improvements that he had made. Prince André several times prompted Pierre's story of what he had been doing as though it were all an old-time story, and he listened not only without interest but even as if ashamed of what Pierre was telling him. <coughs> Excuse me. Pierre felt uncomfortable and even depressed at his friend's company, and at last became silent. I'll tell you what, my dear fellow, said Prince André, who evidently also felt depressed and constrained with his visitor. I am only bivouacking here, and I've just come to look around. I'm going back to my sister today. I'll introduce you to her, but of course you know her already, he said, evidently trying to entertain a visitor with whom he had now found nothing in common. We... We'll go after dinner. And would you now like to look round my place? They went out and walked about till dinner time, talking of the political news and common acquaintances like people who do not know each other intimately. Prince André spoke with some animation and interest only of the new homestead he was constructing and its buildings. And it, But here and there, sorry, but even here, while on the scaffolding in the midst of a talk explaining the future arrangements of the house, he interrupted himself. However, this is not at all interesting. Let us have dinner 
and then we'll set off. At dinner, conversation turned on Pierre's marriage. I was very much surprised when I heard of it, said Prince André. Pierre blushed, as he always did when it was mentioned, and said hurriedly, I will tell you sometime now, sometime how it all happened. But, you know, it is all over, and forever. Forever, said Prince André. Nothing's forever. But you know how it all ended, don't you? You heard of the duel. And so you had to go through that too. One thing I thank God for is that I did not kill that man, said Pierre. Why so? asked Prince André. To kill a vicious dog is a very good thing, really. No, to kill a man is bad, wrong. Why is it wrong? urged Prince André. It is not given to man to know what is right and what is wrong. Men always did and always will err, and in nothing more than in what they consider right and wrong. What does harm to another is wrong. What does harm to another is wrong, said Pierre, feeling with pleasure that for the first time since his arrival Prince André was roused, had begun to talk and wanted to express what had brought him to his present state. And who has told you it is bad for another man, he asked. Bad, bad, exclaimed Pierre. We all know what is bad for ourselves. Yes, we know that, but the harm I am conscious of in myself is something I cannot inflict on others, said Prince André, growing more and more animated and evidently wishing to express his new outlook to Pierre. He spoke in French. I only know two very real evils in life, remorse and illness. The only good is the absence of those evils. To live for myself, avoiding those two evils, is my whole philosophy now. And love one's neighbour and self-sacrifice? began Pierre. No, I can't agree with you. To only live so as not to do evil and not to have to repent is not enough. I lived like that. I lived for myself and ruined my life. And only now, when I am living, or at least trying, Pierre modestly made him correct himself, to live for others. Pierre's modesty made him correct himself, sorry. To live for others. Only now have I understood all the happiness of life. No, I shall not agree with you, and you do not really believe what you are saying. Prince André looked silently at Pierre with an ironic smile. When you see my sister Princess Mary, you will get on with her, he said. Perhaps you are right for yourself, he added after a short pause, but everyone lives in his own way. You lived for yourself and say you nearly ruined your life and only found happiness when you began living for others. I experienced just the reverse. I lived for glory, and after all, what is glory? The same love of others, a desire to do something for them, a desire for their approval. So I lived for others, and not almost, but quite ruined my life, and I have become calmer since I began to live only for myself. But what do you mean by living only for yourself? asked Pierre, growing excited. What about your son, your sister, and your father? But that's just the same as myself. They are not others. Explain, excla, explained Prince André. The others, one's neighbours, Le Prochain, as you and Princess Mary call it, are the chief source of all error and evil. Le Prochain, your Kiev peasants to whom you want to do good. And he looked at Pierre with a mocking, challenging expression. He evidently wished to draw him on. You are joking, replied Pierre, growing more and more excited. What error or evil can there be in my wishing to do good and even doing a little though I did very little, and did it very badly. What evil can there be in it if unfortunate people, our serfs, 
people like ourselves were growing up and dying with no idea of God and truth beyond ceremonies and meaningless prayers and now are now instructed in a comforting belief in future life, retribution, recompense and consolation. What evil and error are there in it if people were dying of disease without help while material assistance could so easily be rendered and I supplied them with a doctor, a hospital and an asylum for the aged? And is it not a palpable, unquestionable good if a peasant or a woman with a baby has no rest day or night and I give them rest and leisure, said Pierre, hurrying and lisping. And I have done that, though badly and to a small extent, but I have done something toward it and you cannot persuade me that it was not a good action and more than that, you can't make me believe that you do not think so yourself. And the main thing is, he continued, that I know and know for certain that the enjoyment of doing this good is the only sure happiness in life. Yes, if you put it like that, it's quite a different matter, said Prince André. I build a house and lay out a garden, and you build hospitals. The one and the other may serve as a pastime, but what's right and what's good must be judged by one who knows all, but not by us. Well, you want an, you want an argument, he added. Come on, then. They rose from the table and sat down in the entrance porch, which, sur which served as a veranda. Come, let's argue, then, said Prince André. You talk of schools, he went on, crooking a finger, education and so forth. That is, you want to raise him, pointing to a peasant who passed them by, taking off his cap, from his animal condition and awaken in him spiritual needs. Well, it seems to me that that animal happiness is the only happiness possible, and that is just what you want to deprive him of. I envy him, but you want to make him what I am, without giving him my means. Then you say, light in his toil, but as I see it, physical labour is an essential to him, as much as a condition of his ex existence as mental activity is to you or me. You can't help thinking, I go to bed after two in the morning, thoughts come and I can't sleep, but toss about until dawn, because I have, because I think and I can't help thinking, just as he can't help ploughing and mowing. If he didn't, he would go to the drink shop or fall ill, just as I could not stand his terrible physical labour but should die within a week, so he could not stand my physical idleness but would grow fat and die. The third thing, what else was it you talked about? And Prince André crooked a third finger, I guess hospitals, medicine. He has, a f he has a fit, he is dying, and you come and bleed him and patch him up. He will drag about as a cripple a burden to everybody for another ten years. It would be far easier and simpler for him to die. Others are being born, and there are plenty of them as it is. It would be different if you grudged losing a labourer, that's how I regard him, but you want to cure him from love of him, and he does not want that. And besides, what a notion that medicine ever cured anyone. Killed them, yes, said he, frowning angrily and turning away from Pierre. Prince André expressed his ideas so clearly and distinctly that it was evident that he had reflected on this subject more than once, and he spoke readily and rapidly like a man who was not talked, f who had not talked for a long time. His glance became more animated, and his conclusions became more hopeless. Oh, that is dreadful, dreadful," said Pierre. "I don't understand how one can live with such ideas. I had such moments myself not long ago in Moscow and when travelling, but at such times I collapsed so that I don't live at all. Everything seems hateful to me." myself most of all. Then I don't eat, don't wash, and how is it with you? 
why not wash? That is not cleanly, said Prince Andre. On the contrary, one must try to make one's life as pleasant as possible. I'm alive. That is not my fault. So I must live out my life as best I can without hurting others. But with such ideas, what motive have you for living? One would sit without moving, undertaking nothing. Life, as it is, leaves no one, leaves one no peace. I should be thankful to do nothing, but here, on the one hand, the local nobility have done me the honour to choose me to be their marshal. It was all I could do to get out of it. They could not understand that I have not the necessary qualifications for it, the kind of good-natured, fussy shallowness necessary for the position. Then there's this house, which must be built in order to have a nook of one's own in which to be quiet, and now there's this recruiting why aren't you serving in the army? After Austerlitz, said Prince Andre gloomily, no thank you very much. I have promised myself not to serve again in the active Russian army, and I won't, not even if Bonaparte were here at Smolensk threatening bald hills. Even then I wouldn't serve in the Russian army. Well, as I was saying, he continued, recovering his composure. Now, there's this recruiting my father is chief in command of the third district, and my only way of avoiding active service is to serve under him. Then you are serving? I am. He paused a little while. And why do you serve? Why, for this reason. My father is one of the most remarkable men of his time, but he is growing old, and though not exactly cruel, he has too energetic a character. He is so accustomed to unlimited power that he is terrible, and now... He has this authority of a commander-in-chief of the recruiting granted by the emperor. If I had been two hours late a fortnight ago, he would have had a paymaster's clerk at Yukovna hanged, said Prince Andre with a smile. So I am serving because I alone have any influence with my father, and now and then can save him from actions which would torment him afterwards. Well, there, you see... Yes, but it is not as you imagined, Prince Andre continued. I did not and do not in the least care about that scoundrel of a clerk who had stolen some boots from the recruits. I should have even have been very glad to see him hanged, but I was sorry for my father. That again is for myself. Prince Andre grew more and more animated. His eyes glittered feverishly while he tried to prove to Pierre that in his actions there was no desire to do good to his neighbour. There now. You wish to liberate your serfs, he continued. That is a very good thing, but not for you. I don't suppose you ever had anyone flogged or sent to Siberia, and still less for your serfs. If they are beaten, flogged, or sent to Siberia, I don't suppose they are any the worse off. In Siberia they lead the same animal life, and the stripes on their bodies heal, and they are happy as before. But it is a good thing for proprietors who perish morally bring remorse upon themselves, stifle this remorse, and grow callous as a result of being able to inflict punishments justly and unjustly. It is those people I pity, and for their sake I should like to liberate the serfs. You may not have seen, but I have seen, how good men brought up in those traditions of unlimited power, in time when they grow more irritable, become cruel and harsh, are conscious of it, but cannot restrain themselves and grow more and more miserable. Prince André spoke so earnestly that Pierre could not help thinking that these thoughts had been suggested to Prince André by his father's case. He did not reply. So that's what I'm sorry for. Human dignity, peace of mind, purity, and not the serf's backs and foreheads which beat and shave as you may, always remain the same backs and foreheads. 
No, no, a thousand times no. I shall never agree with you, said Pierre. All right, there we go. Well, the bromance has resumed between these two, but, uh, you know, the bromance isn't quite as bromantic as it used to be. Uh, uh, relatable, but also a little bit sad, disappointing. All right, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.